Review Radio. I'm Matt Schaefer, the editor of World's View, and uh, joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how you doing? Good, good. Glad, uh, glad we got the trade deadline past us. Uh, it's one of the few kind of intervals in the season that lets you kind of know where you're at. So now, uh, although, you know, did I did I just fall asleep and miss the uh, All-Star break, or uh, did that just not happen at all? There is no All-Star break this kidding. year. There's no September yeah. call-ups this year. There's no... Uh, there's a lot of things we're missing out on this year, uh, but uh, we did have a good old-fashioned trade deadline. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, later on in the show. Uh, also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, back from uh, oh, Cleveland, Ohio, I believe. How, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, driving uh, nine hours is not fun. I forgot what it was like to drive for that long. Um, thankfully, I had some people to share the driving with, but... You know, staying in your house for so long um, has its side effects. Yeah, I, I went to school in Ohio, and I've done the, the drive to Ohio a few times. It's not uh, it's not all inter- not all that interesting. <laughs> it's a lot a lot of a uh, lot of wide open space in this country, isn't there? Definitely. I mean, uh, one of the things that I you really don't think about is like, okay, Iowa, not much there. You know, if you're driving an I I eighty. Um, Kansas, Nebraska on I-70 and I-80 respectively. If you're going to Colorado, you know, not, not a whole lot there. But you know what's really not a whole lot is most of Illinois on I-80. There's just nothing. Like that is as as much nothing as anywhere in the country. Yeah, we were driving. We drew, took a trip to North Carolina a few weeks ago. I think I mentioned that. And I noticed that we drove through Illinois and there was a big, it looked like a prison of some sort uh, right off the highway. And next to that was a rest stop. And the combination of those three things being near each other seemed like a really bad combination. I just didn't, I don't know who designed that, but uh, that struck me as, as perhaps not the best uh, best things to have in your in, the, in one area. But uh, yeah, Illinois is, Illinois is just as boring as uh, driving through as, as most, most of Kansas. So uh, I guess kudos for being able to make that trip back and forth. Uh, well, I'm sure you got a little more uh, excitement when you came back and you saw that there had been an active trade deadline. Uh, although perhaps uh, not as active as some would have liked uh, for the Royals, uh, they did make two trades. The first one taking place last week, and it was a little bit unexpected. Uh, without fielder Brett Phillips going to the Tampa Bay Rays for shortstop Lucius Fox, then on Saturday they traded closer Trevor Trevor Rosenthal, who was a very hot name at the trade deadline, uh, sending him to the San Diego Padres in exchange for outfielder Edward Olivares. Uh, we'll start with the. Rosenthal trade first because I think that was probably the attention uh, attention getter. But Sean, uh, Edward Olivares, he you know he's he's appeared in a handful of games and the big league level this year. Last year he was in Double A for San or Double A Amarillo. He hit uh, two eighty three, three forty nine, three forty nine on base percentage, four fifty three slug, eighteen home runs, thirty five steals. Uh, so he's got a good power speed combination. Um, what's kind of your take on on Olivares and and the Rosenthal trade in general? Yeah, I mean, I thought the trade itself was pretty good. I mean, you know, the cost of getting Rosenthal, I, I keep saying this number, it might not even be true, but I think it was prorated $2 million, I think was what his deal was. Um, and so, I mean, if that's effectively what it costs to buy, um, you know, what you consider a 40 future value prospect, which is about a notch below 50 is usually, a 50 future value is usually where you start getting in the top 100. So you can talk about a guy that's maybe a half, a, a grade down from, uh, the a top 100 list but i mean if that's all it costs you i mean it wouldn't be it wouldn't be crazy if Olivares was a free agent um that he would latch on to somewhere now you know he would 
be subject to service time, but it wouldn't be crazy to think that he could eventually, basically, over the next six years, make two million, um, or all of his club control uh, make two million dollars. So basically, what it cost, I, I think it was good uh, return for the cost of just you know Rosenthal. Now I think some of us maybe were expecting maybe a little more, um, given that Rosenthal was hinted as the best reliever on the market, um, which you know if that's the case, and it was a pretty pretty bad uh relief market um but it's still i mean it, i if you mostly have to like for what it was um you know even if you don't like the approach and that's the big thing with all of errors is the approach isn't great uh but i mean physically he, he looks really good uh you know has some power it, the approach plays down the power a bit but there's some internal power there um decent fielder i mean decent speed i mean he, he looks looks like he could be an everyday player um at least a, an average player and you know for rosenthal that you know a low acquisition cost it was a pretty good deal um fangraphs rated actually interestingly enough fangraphs rated uh they rated every prospect trade at the deadline they ranked them and they actually put the lucius fox return for brett phillips um at 13th, they put Lucius Fox at 13th, and then Oliveros is 14th. Um, but that's Fangraphs is kind of down on them. They had him 33rd in the Padre system, uh, so you can imagine that you know um, skewed the rankings of them. But I think other places were were a, a little bit uh, uh, more appreciative of Oliveros, and I think someone had him like 14th or so. Maybe it was MLB Pipeline or Baseball America. Someone had him up there. He was consistently in the top. 15 to 20 ish area as opposed to way back at 33 and now Keith law had him unranked in his what went to about 25 it was 20 plus honorable missions um for the padre system so there's a lot of variance there um but yeah i mean i think for what it costs to acquire him um maybe if you think about it in the sense of rosenthal had a ton of uh heat at the deadline uh and you maybe would expect more but let's just say that you you know wiped away those expectations necessarily the return of Rosenthal, which cost the Royals basically nothing to pick up, and had him for whatever it ends up being, 30 games, um, getting Oliveros back is is a good swap. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting trade deadline that, I mean, there's so much uncertainty. And, and Rosenthal, I mean, he's a guy with an injury past. He was pretty terrible last year in a couple with a couple teams. And he's been healthy and effective for, like, all of 13 innings. So I don't know if we, you know, if we should have had, like, really high expectations, even though he was one of the more yeah. talked about um, you know, kind of tradable players at the deadline. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw, you know, kind of what the return was. And, and a lot of teams weren't willing to give up, like, really top prospects. So, um, you know, probably you know, Oliveras, maybe that's, you know, it seems like a lot of the evaluators thought that was a pretty fair deal. And we should point out, there was actually also got a player to be named later, which yeah. uh, Jeff Passan of ESPN said it was probably a low-level relief prospect. It's probably a player the Royals have identified already. It's just you're not allowed to trade players that aren't part of the 60-man club pool until after the season so uh the royals will probably get that player as soon as the season's over uh so you can you are getting two players uh, but oliver is probably is going to be the one that's probably the more significant prospect um but matthew looking back at the trade market now and and, and we'll talk more in a little bit about how aggressive the padres were but what was your feeling on the kind of value the royals got for oliver and and also with them kind of getting, uh, with them getting getting him and uh, Cordero, Frenchy Cordero, a month ago, it seems like they're really loading up on outfielders here. Yeah, I I, I think that what the Royals are doing with their outfield is really interesting. Um, the other trade that they did was um, by trading Brett Phillips to the Tampa Bay Rays for Lucius Fox, um, who, if we're being honest, that's an eighty grade name. That's just a really fantastic name. 
Um, Which, by the so, way, I, I just watched The Dark Knight last night with my, my son, and I, I, I and I forgot the connection to it. I'm like, oh yeah, he's a uh, same name as the Royals, the new prospect. Yeah, I mean, but like independently, it's it's just it's it's a fantastic name, Lucius Fox. Just oh, so good. Uh, but that's that is irrelevant. Uh, names do not win you games. Uh, playing good wins you games. Um, and I think. Uh, what we're seeing a little bit here is maybe a sign that the Royals think that what they currently have in the outfield just kind of isn't cutting it. Um, so they had Brett Phillips. They traded for Brett Phillips um, as part of the Mike Moustakas deal. And he, he never really could get, um, you know, footing. Uh, last year he really struggled at the plate. He spent most of it in AAA. Um, and this year he couldn't seem to crack the lineup. Um, and, you know, when when – the Royals don't exactly have a super deep lineup anyways, and Brett Phillips just, just can't get into the lineup, um, you, you know, even when Brubba Starling was out with an injury. I and mean, that, that's sort of telling um, on their opinion on Brett Phillips. And, you know, you know, maybe five years ago, I would have um, been kind of disappointed that the Royals got rid of Brett Phillips um, because they never really gave him a chance. Uh, you know, I mean... He had 34 plate appearances this year stretched across, you know, a whole bunch of games, which is not exactly, you know, a, a very big set uh, to draw from, a set of data to draw from. Um, but really, you know, the, the more that I, you know, write about baseball and the more that I think about baseball, um, you know, Brett Phillips has sort of has had a chance in the major leagues. He's had... Um, 358 plate appearances, and in those 358 plate appearances, he's been 36% below league average in terms of offensive production. And, you know, even if he's a very, very good defender, um, an elite defender, there's only so much you can do when you don't hit at all. Um, and, you know, you can you can always say, oh, well, player X didn't get a... Um, you know, a fair shake at it. But ultimately, you've got to produce when you're given the opportunity, right? For instance, Ryan McBroom has been given some opportunity. Not a whole lot, but he has produced when given the opportunity. And players like Brett Phillips haven't. So ultimately, you can't you can't always say, oh, well, if they'd only been given so many, you know, chances, then they would have done well. It, it's not that simple. So I think them sending Brett Phillips um, out... Um, is indicative of what they feel about the outfield and also um, in terms of, like you said, what they have gotten in return. Um, so they got um, Edward Olivares um, and then Franchi Cordero, both of whom are similar-ish, you know, toolsy prospects, um, you know, toolsy, toolsy outfielders with some speed, some power, but who, you know, haven't refined their game. Um, and then they have, you know, Nick Heath, and um, Kyle Isbell, who they're very high on. Um, and then there's Colin Lee, who sort of gets uh, maybe forgotten about a little bit. I wonder if that says a little bit about what they're thinking in terms of the long-term um, viability of Hunter Dozier in the outfield, Whit Merrifield in the outfield, and also I think it probably speaks to them not re-signing Alex Gordon, right? So I think moving forward, they, they seem to be committed to athletic outfielders that can that can really field. I mean, Brett Phillips wasn't in that list. Um, and I think if Bubba Starling doesn't perform, you know, by the end of this year, I think he's probably the next one on the, on the cutting board because they have these younger, more athletic outfielders who have, um, you know, had better track records in the minor leagues than, than Bubba Starling has. 
So I think Bubba Stallings sort of the next player to keep an eye on. But it also seems, uh, you know, to your to your question about whether or not they got a good return on those players, you know, Brett Phillips is kind of, you know, not a super great player himself. And Rosenthal, like you said, had 13 good innings, you know, to get anybody out of 13 good innings is, you know, really smart, uh, really smart move by Dave Moore. So it's it seems it seems about right. I mean, if I if I were the Royals and I was and I were contending, um, you know, and I I don't know if I would you know send anybody more than Khalil Lee for Rosenthal. You know, personally, maybe not even that. So I think I think they get they get pretty pretty fair return. Um, and I think one of the things to think about in return in terms of of trade deadlines is that you don't have to win or lose a trade. You can make a trade that benefits both sides. And and it certainly seems that um, the Royals made trades that will probably benefit both sides um, of, of their partners, right? So the Royals probably will benefit, and the Rays and the Padres um, will probably benefit. And um, that's, that's as fair a trade as you can get. Yeah, I think Dave Moore's even kind of said that at some points. He like he wants to see trades where both teams would benefit. Um, which, yeah, I think you know this this deal seemed to make uh, both of these deals seem to make sense for kind of for both sides. Just getting back to Oliveras a little bit, and and, and you know I, I think they did mention you mentioned kind of like you know the 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 future of the outfield, and uh, there was I think Dave Moore did discuss that they were looking specifically for a right-handed bat, uh, which Oliveras is. Uh, and because that, they saw a lot of their future outfield as being very left-handed, which would include presumably Franchi Cordero and Kyle Isbell and Khalil Leo, all of whom are left-handed hitters. But it didn't make me wonder about, you know, like you mentioned, Whit Merrifield and Hunter Dozier, who are both right-handed hitters, if they, you know, if they're a part of the uh, outfield of the future. Uh, and if they're not, where do they end up? Are they in the infield? Which I guess would make more sense, I guess, just because that's their natural positions. Or are they out of Kansas City altogether? And I, I tend to believe it's a former, not the latter. But, uh, you know, it did kind of raise uh, my eyebrows a little bit when, when Dayton Moore said that. Um, just kind of an interesting aside. Uh, you know, Sean, you mentioned Oliveras could be a regular hitter. I think a lot of the scouting reports kind of said, you know, he's got a chance to be a, more of a fourth outfielder. But, you know, if his power is developing. And there was an interesting scouting report over at Prospects 365 about how he had changed his stance a little bit last year and, and and was lofting the ball a little bit more, and if he hits for a little more power, then I think you could see perhaps him sticking as a as a regular outfielder. But one thing that does kind of stick out in his tool uh, in his skill set right now is uh, he's not a real big stri- uh, strikeout guy. Uh, he doesn't walk much at all either, but he does put the ball in play quite a bit. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's by design of the Royals. You know, they've kind of their philosophy for a long time has been they don't like walks and they don't like strikeouts they like guys that can kind of put the ball in play and make things happen with their legs and wreak havoc on the bases and to an extent that worked in 2014 and 15 um but we've also kind of seen like it's kind of hard to make that work uh with all players Nicky Lopez had a really low strikeout rate uh in the minors but it's 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 hard to come up and and do that in the major league level and have success uh, what do you make of Oliveras's ability to make contact and and that skill set as a useful tool to help score runs. Yeah, I don't think that the Royals, when they acquired Oliveras, they were looking for any particular philosophy. I, I think they, um, you know, we know them as kind of an older school, N- not as much anymore, obviously, but, you know, historically they've been kind of an older school scouting um, kind of background when they look for players. And I think that 
oh, there fits that package. Um, I tweeted out uh, his first home run, which was kind of like he muscled it the other way. His first hit um, was, you know, a, a really hard hit. I think like 110 mile per hour liner um, he pulled. So I think there's a lot of physical tools there, but I'm not sure necessarily that they acquired him with an idea about, oh, we need a guy. Um, you know, we're looking for a guy who can put the ball in play because I think Olivares has some approach issues where, um, gosh, who was oh Phil Irving, who I was thinking about the other day, and one of our commenters, the laundry, shout out to him. Um, he mentioned this as well. Phil Irving suffered from similar problem with uh, Olivares, where it was like, oh, you know, decent batted, batted ball data. The problem was that the outcomes from that batted balls weren't very good. Um, and that's not dissimilar to Nicky Lopez, uh, but Nicky Lopez's pow- problem is power. Um, Olivera's and Phil Irving's problem is in power. It's just uh, something about the contact quality. They're just not making it good quality. And, you know, it could be a launch angle thing. It could just be the pitches that they're swinging at when they do make contact. Um, there's a couple different things there. But that's what I saw with Olivera's. Um, and you guys had mentioned as well um, about them looking for uh, a particular style, a particular handed hitter. And I, I thought that was... Strange hearing more say that because, you know, I think we can all admit that the Royals probably aren't going to make the playoffs this year. I'm not sure next year is either the year. I don't think I've ever heard of a team setting their roster, their lineup up two years in advance based off of platoons. Um, so it, it kind of an interesting note. And I think a lot of us were kind of perplexed by that. Um, and, you know, as you guys have mentioned. Yeah, let's turn to, now to the Brett Phillips trade, which uh, Matthew Lamar uh, talked a little bit about uh, in exchange for Phillips. Uh, the Royals uh, got Lucius Fox, a switch-hitting shortstop from the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Fox, only at 221 last year uh, in 119 games across AA and AAA with three home runs. But he has really good speed. He stole 39 bases, can walk a little bit, 10% walk rate uh, in the minors. Um, above average defense as far as uh, at the, the shortstop position, uh, kind of, kind of your, you know, typical toolsy, speedy guy, uh, and you know, f- to be honest, for for Phillips, who is probably going to be uh, released or designated for assignment at some point in the next couple months. I mean, I don't know if that's that's really that bad of a return. Fox is apparently a guy that um, the Royals had had their eye on for a while. Sean, uh, what's kind of your take on Lucius Fox uh, and what he can do for the Royals in the system? Yeah, I mean, I was he was. He was a big name value at one point, and that's what kind of jumped out. And I still kind of not stuck there, but that's what pops in my head is that he was a really big international prospect um, back when he was signed by the Giants originally. I think he was like the second highest bonus in the year that had like Vlad Jr., um, Jordan, not Jordan Alvarez, uh, Yadier Alvarez. Um, so, I mean, he was a big time international signee, obviously, as you know, Royals fans can attest to those international signings don't work out always. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I was I was interested in the name itself. I mean, again, I think we had pretty low. Ex- First off, it was a surprise move, right? I think when when if turns out Phillips was traded, I don't think any of us expected it to happen. Um, but you know, getting something for Brett Phillips in that not that Lucius Fox is a particularly great prospect, but for a guy who's going to be DFA DFA'd probably soon, anyways. It's kind of nice that you can rotate out a guy who, you know, has all three options left, obviously hasn't even made his major league debut um, and kind of gets a somewhat interesting profile. I mean, it's kind of the thing. I I can't think of a good comp form necessarily because, I mean, there's good speed, but there's an issue with kind of 
good speed and good defender, but there's options, uh, issues with, um, uh, like, strikeouts contact, I guess. Gosh, I was blanking on that word. So, and kind of a little lack of power. So it's kind of like, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say Mondesi, but it's more like not quite a good defender, but still the contact issue. So it's an interesting prospect. And again, I mean, it was for a guy who I think a lot of us wouldn't have been surprised if Phillips was DFA'd. Um, so, but are we consider, do we consider the book closed on the, um, the, the Moustakas trade? Cause Lopez is gone. Now Phillips is gone. Or do we continue the book perpetually open as long as one person from that piece, like is the Lorenzo or is the, uh, is the Lorenzo Canes at Grinky, uh, trade still open because there's probably a player somewhere in the system that was acquired after and after and after. Yeah. Well, it's like a coaching the, tree. Yeah. The Fox, yeah, right? Fox extends it. He extends the trade. We keep it open. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it keeps it going. So yeah, the trade will, the trade continues even though Jorge Lopez is, is long gone and, and Brett Phillips is gone. And, and Matthew, you know, you, you talked about Brett Phillips not really getting a chance and look, you know, he's a 26 year old who, who hit two Oh five and, 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 136 major league games, so you know, it's not likely that Phillips is going to set the world on fire in Tampa Bay. Although, you know, if a team was going to turn him around, you would think the Rays would be a good candidate for it. But it is curious, you know, you mentioned he never really got a chance, and I'm I'm curious as to why that happened. Uh, you know, because he, he is a really good defender, and the Royals really pride themselves on defense. He he showed pretty good pop in the minors. He showed an ability to steal bases and draw walks, and it's not like they were just teaming with options in outfit in the outfield. At the big league level, what really stymied Brett Phillips and, and kind of prevented him from having success success in Kansas City? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is uh, I I don't really know. Um, I, part of the answer is that um, they had Alex Gordon locked in every day in left field, which basically only meant that there were two outfield spots that were open. Um, and when you have Nicky Lopez paying second base, that means that Whit Merrifield, who's your best player, has to take one of those other outfield spots, and that means that you only have one outfield spot, right? And then, oh, well, Hunter Dozier's back, and when they kicked off the year, they wanted Hunter Dozier in right field, uh, you know, to play every day, and for the most part, he's played right field, you know, a couple of first base here and there. Um, but the Royals between um, Michael Franco at third base and Alex Gordon in left field, that just sort of, you know, caused a, a domino effect where there weren't really any everyday outfield spots up for grabs because, um, you know, if if you don't play Hunter Dozier in the outfield, um, well, then you're missing out on his stellar 21% walk rate, which I, I genuinely can't believe that he's doing right now, which is amazing. Um, or you don't play with Merrifield, and you know that that's not good because you want with Merrifield to play every day because again he's your best player. So I think part of it is just um, a consequence of players that the Royals had, and I think maybe part of it is also just if he never clicked with Mike Matheny, you know there isn't a lot of insight into the clubhouse right now. Um, not just here at Rose Review, which we've we've never had official access, but elsewhere, um, you know, reporters aren't aren't allowed into the into the clubhouse basically at all, and so we really don't know what's going on in there. And it it may just be that there was some sort of, you know, butting of heads, you know, or just nothing really clicked. And that's that's really I think what 
makes the most sense because in situations like this in which you have Bubba Starling and Brett Phillips, and Brett Phillips has a much longer track record of being really good in the outfield, and Bubba Starling's the guy who gets uh, the defensive um, you know, replacement uh, in the later innings. You know, I think that, that might be indicative of something else going on that we just don't know about. Um, but also related to the sort of like um, domino effect of players that resulted in Brett Phillips not having enough time and who Brett Phillips was traded for, um, was, you know, Lucius Fox. I do wonder if the Royals are maybe um, moving away from Nicky Lopez as an everyday player uh, with their trade for Lucius Fox, who could play a good second base. Um, and Lucius Fox is about um, two and a half years younger um, than uh, Nicky Lopez. Let's see, he's 23 years in one month versus 25. And yeah, so almost two and a half years younger than Nicky Lopez is. Um, and I think at this point, you really have to wonder if Nicky Lopez isn't just going to be basically Chris Getz again. Uh, you know, after 510 career plate appearances, his offensive production, both last year and this year, is really, really similar. He doesn't have, you know, very good um, exit velocity figures. Um, he just hasn't walked the rate that he has in the minors, and he struck out a lot, whole lot more. Uh, he hasn't shown any power. So I do wonder if trading for Fox isn't sort of a two birds with one stone thing because the Royals got a guy who might be able to step up and play second base for them if they choose to maybe move Nicky Lopez into a more utility player uh, type of uh, position, which I think would suit him better um, if he's not going to be able to hit. So um, that's something to keep an eye on as well um, to see if the Royals are going to stick with Nicky Lopez or move on from him. I don't really know if they are going to do it either way, but um, he's basically played every day um, this year for the most part. So um, they're sticking with him for now, but I think trading for Lucius Fox might indicate that they're at least hedging their bets against him moving forward. Yeah, I there are some fans that when the Royals acquired Fox, they thought, oh, is this, does this mean something for Alberto Mondesi? And I'm, like, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. He's not going to replace Alberto Mondesi. Like, this is this is a depth move. This is like a guy to compete with Nicky Lopez at second base. And and most likely, his, his, most, his most likely outcome is that he'll be a reserve infielder who can be a pinch runner for you on occasion. He's not. I, I think someone compared him to Eric Mejia. Like, that's that's probably, like, the most likely outcome. He's going to be a triple-A-ish guy that – uh, maybe breaks through and is a bench guy at the big league level, but um, but yeah, not probably not much more than that. I know you didn't have anything on your agenda, maybe to talk about Mondesi, but while well, you brought him up, I mean, what's let's say this continues how poorly he's been hitting. What's the next two years look like? Do you guys think? I mean, like you know, say next year we get a full season of baseball, and you know, so maybe not September, say August thirty first, whatever uh, comes around, and he's still hitting whatever he's at now of 11 WRC plus. I mean, when is the fork, when is the proverbial fork get stuck in him? You know, they're just an organization that is so loyal to their, to the players that are their guys. Like Mike Moustakas really struggled for what, two or three seasons there. Uh, and they sent him to the minors, which they can't do with Mondesi because he's out of options, but they were pretty, they stuck with him. And, you know, to be honest, like, what are your options at that point? You you can't if you trade him, you're you're kind of um, selling low on him, and 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 you're kind of basically admitting that we can't turn him around. Um, and he is still helping you with his speed and his defense. 
Um, at least you know you, you don't. I don't think his, his slumps have, have hurt his defense too much. I think he has made some some miscues out there, but but overall his defense has still been a plus. So I don't know. I think they're, they're going to ride or die with him for a while. I just don't see them moving on from him, especially since there aren't a lot of other great options. I guess they could go with Bobby Witt Jr., but I think I think most likely they would like to see Witt alongside Monacy with Monacy at short and Witt at third. But I don't know, Matthew. What do you what do you think? Is Monacy kind of is he going to be struggling for a couple of years here? Well, I think is uh, you know this year there are just a lot of extenuating circumstances in you know every every part of our lives. So I'm not sure if this year is really super indicative of Montezzi's skill level. You know, it's 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 just a really weird season. It's a really weird year. It's there's I I, I think that the Royals are going to give him a mulligan. Um, you know, even if he's awful, awful, awful through the rest of this year they should give him a mulligan for next year. But I think next year is really the the year, right? So coming into the year, Montezzi would be looking to have his first healthy, full, big league season. And he has a thousand plate appearances worth of, of data. Can he make the step? And I think next year is going to be the year. And if he can make the step, the next step, even if it's just to be a league average hitter, you know, I think the Royals you know, might even extend him and, and he'll be good. But I think if he can't make the step and he just doesn't move forward, I think that's, you know, you're maybe looking at the end of the road for him uh, in a Royals uniform. Um, because, you, you know, you said that they stuck with their guys and that's that's true. But this is Montezzi's fifth season, right? It's not just like uh, the Royals stuck with Moose for a couple of years. Like this is Montezzi's fifth season with the Royals. Next year will be his sixth season with the Royals. That's a long time to stick with a guy who hasn't shown a sustained uh, level of offense that you would expect um, or even want uh, from a, from a player like that. So I think next year is the year for him. I think the rest of this year doesn't matter. They'll take whatever they can get. And it's, it's a really tough year because you, you can't hide him. You can't send him to the minor leagues. And it's, there's just a lot of extenuating circumstances. Remember, Mondesi was coming back from a major shoulder surgery. You know, I, this year's a wash. Next year's the big year. But we've had 1,000 plate appearances. What can he do next year? Um, and then after that, it, like, if he doesn't, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think the Royals may consider maybe moving him to the outfield or at least turning him into a utility player, a bench player who has more opportunities to use his speed and defense and less opportunities to hurt the team with his bat. I think that's probably the next move. So but does, or, does, doesn't he have the, the most value at shortstop? I mean, because he is a good defender. At yeah. Shortstop. Oh, yeah. 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 And, he, and at shortstop, you don't have to really hit that much. To, I mean, like he was a 260 hitter last year with a little bit of pop, 715, you know, 86 OPS plus. But he was still a two and a half win player because he's so such a threat in the bases and he plays good defense. I, you know, there's been talk, especially among a lot of our users, our, our readers, about moving him to center field. Like that would be a solution to his problems. But I don't see how that really helps him. It's a harder position um, as far as like you have to hit more to be a good center fielder than you do at shortstop. You'd have to learn a new position, which he's I think he's already got enough of in his mind. I just I think he's shown enough that like if he posts another 86 OPS plus for the next couple seasons, I think a lot of Royals fans would probably take that because you're still a two win player. He just can't be as bad as he's been this year. I mean, I think that's the big thing. You just can't be under the Mendoza line. <laughs> yeah, I the problem with Montezzi is that this is Montezzi's third season in which he's basically been at about 70 percent below league average or worse. 
and that's that's quite an achievement. It's not a great achievement, but I think I that's that's just a product of him like being in a you know in a spiral downward. You know, I don't think he he's way he's way better than that. He's clearly much more talented to be you know seventy. 83% worse than league average, which is what, what he is right now. He's clearly better than that, but the question is not, you know, whether or not he has the talent for it, it's whether or not he can he can produce. And I, I agree that the he doesn't have to be a league average hitter. He could be a bad hitter and still be productive. But I, you know, what I guess I guess we'll see. Because Mondesi hasn't just been bad, he's been like pitcher hitting bad. And this is not the first time that this has gotten into a position where he's got off to a poor start and just never recovered. And I, and I wonder, like, if Montezzi is such a player where he has to be put in the exact specific position to succeed and not, you know, get into this downward spiral and just, like, always be, you know, in this, this perfect mindset to, to play, uh, to be a good hitter, you know, that's never going to happen. You know, baseball is about adjustments. It's about bouncing back. And if Mondesi can't bounce back, then, you know, does it really matter that he has the ability to be a league average hitter if every time he gets into a big slump, he just spirals down and can't pull out of it? Well, Matthew, I did want to move back to the trade deadline. You had a piece this week about how you thought the Royals really missed an opportunity at the trade deadline by not trading Whit Merrifield. Tell us what you think the Royals maybe should have done uh, at the trade deadline when it comes to Whit or, or any other players. Yeah, I think – so the the Royals have almost the perfect uh, trade guy in Whit. Um, he's a really great player. Um, for the Royals, he's their best player, but he's about you know between a three and a five-win player. Um, I think, you know, per 150 games, he's been basically a three and a half win player for his career, which, you know, really great. Um, not super awesome, but it, but it's a very good player, great player to have. Uh, Merrifield can play multiple positions in the infield and outfield, so there's a lot of teams who would want him. And indeed, in the last couple of years, we've seen rumor after rumor about, you know, how Team X wants him. Uh, a lot of times it's the Chicago Cubs, they keep popping up, but, you know. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds have shown interest. Like, there's multiple teams who have shown interest in in Wit in the past, and he would have a market if the Royals would put him on the market. Um, Merrifield's under control for the next two seasons uh, after this, um, so he would be the type of guy who has um, who is under control for longer than just this season, which would mean teams would be more likely to part with higher tier prospects for him. And also, Merrifield is affordable. He's over. He's owed just a little bit more than ten million dollars for the rest of his contract, which is, you know, every team in baseball can afford that. Uh, even the ones that say they can't, you know, for a player like Witt's caliber, they they can afford it. Um, but my argument is that you know the Royals just aren't really benefiting from Whit Merrifield right now. They have sucked every year that Whit Merrifield has been uh, a player on the Royals. Uh, and if they trade him, it's not like, you know, they're a great team that needs him. They're going to be bad with him. They're going to be bad without him. I would just like to see the Royals cash in on a trade chip um, and and just get get back value for when they, they need it, you know. I think the Royals should not just be looking towards the next couple of years, but you think at the last, the last rebuild, um, their big-time prospects debuted in 2011. They didn't make the playoffs until 2014. So, you know, say next year, um, Asa Lacey and Bobby Witt 
and Daniel Lynch all make their, their debuts, you know, well, it might be a couple of years until those guys are, you know, really grooving and, um, you know, the Royals are, are ready to make the playoffs. Well, all of a sudden it's, you know, 2025, 2026, and Whit Merrifield is long gone by then. And if you trade Whit Merrifield, you're not losing out on anything right now. But what you might get back is some serious difference makers for the future. And not just like the next couple of years, but, you know, the next four to seven years, um, which is, um, you know, if you want to be a sustainable uh, team, you are going to want to have players who are good for three, four, five, six, seven years in the future. And the Royals have just sort of, you know, let Whit Merrifield be the best player on their team for a couple of years. And but it's 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 just not doing anything. And the Royals have lost 200 uh, games over the last two years. And this year they are on pace to lose 100 games if there were enough games in the season to lose 100 games. And Whit Merrifield's been on the team for all all of those years. You know the Royals just need to cash in on a trade chip. They just need to let it go and cash them in. And of course they didn't because they would rather keep them around. And you know for Royals fans who are who are watching the games right now, you know that's fun. But the Royals are bad please get some value out of your top trade, you know, chip. It's, uh, I'm, I'm frustrated with Royals, but I'm also not surprised at all. This is their MO. They've said that, Dane Moore has said that the Royals want to keep him around because he's like good for the city. You remember them saying something like that? Um, you know, I think the Royals see a greater value than just baseball in Whit Merrifield. Hey, he, wants, is, he wants the he wants the kids to have someone to look up to. Yeah. And, you know, that's great. But the kids didn't have, you know, weren't looking up to, uh, you know, Mike Sweeney in 2005. They weren't watching the baseball, uh, the Royals in 2005, because the Royals in 2005 were bad. And the kids aren't watching the Royals now because the Royals are bad. You know, what What kids, I, now, now I'm just ranting, but basically, ultimately, at the end of the day, people watch good baseball more than they watch bad baseball. The Royals should do what they can to make good baseball and bad seasons. They need to move their players that they need to in order to make the good baseball come quicker and stay longer. Yeah, it isn't surprising they didn't move him, but at the same time, you know, you need it takes two to tango, Sean, and the Royals have had a, a high asking price for Merrifield. I think justifiably so. And looking at what happened at the trade deadline, we didn't really see a lot of high elite prospects get traded. I think the best one was probably Taylor Trammell, the outfielder for the Padres. And, you know, he's a top 100 guy, I think, on most lists. But even he has kind of been dealt twice now in the last year for, you know, in deals that were probably a little underwhelming for what we would think a top 100 guy would be traded for. Um, And so I, I wonder, I question if there really is that Whitmerfield trade out there, uh, and maybe there will be this winner, but um, but I don't know. What, what's kind of your take on whether or not the Royals should trade Whitmerfield, and if there's there if there's a trade out there to be had? I mean, I feel like a broken record at this point, right? I feel like we've been called for Merrifield to be traded for two, three years now. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's going to be interest, and his interest. He's still obviously a good player, uh, but I think his value, you know, has obviously gone down as he's aged a little bit his contract is still you know great it's some ridiculous amount two million dollars or something uh so i mean in that sense you know he's gained value from a contract standpoint technically um given control but you know i i think that 
I think that he peaked in value um, maybe a year or two ago because he had that ridiculous, whatever it was, four win season. Uh, maybe he got the five. I'm looking at it right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been calling for it for a while now. Uh, he got to, yeah, that's what I thought, 5.2 um, in 2018. Um, and, and, you know, he was good the next year at 2.9, and he's been good this year at 1.1. Um, so, I mean, he's obviously, you know, a, a very good player despite being 31. And obviously, you know, as a 31-year-old myself, I don't think that's too old. But he yeah. has kind of hit the aging curve, the what is traditionally seen as the downside of the aging curve. Um, so I, I do think his value was higher. And I don't know. Um, I would love to see him get shopped. I think you could get uh, – I don't think you get the Zobrisk the Zobrist test package um, that the Royals gave up at the deadline for him. Um, but I do think that you could get, you know, a top 100 or so prospect um, for him, um, you know, potentially multiple top 100 prospects for the right team if they've got him. So, you know, the Rays would love to have him um, or something like that. And they have a super stacked farm system. So suitors definitely. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you have a buyer, you need a seller um, to match with it. And it's not necessarily clear the Royals have a seller. One player that that didn't really get a lot of discussion, uh, and I guess probably because he wasn't really that available, was was Josh Dalmont, though. Uh, and, you know, he's he's thrown really well, and I think the Royals see him as part of their future. I mean, he, he's in his rookie season, and I don't want to just say, like, oh, the Royals should, should trade a guy that, as soon as he's good, but he would be a guy that would have a lot of value out there um, uh, you know, because he has so many controllable years. And, Sean, you know, should the Royals consider trading him? And we know relievers... So they can be pretty volatile. They can have, uh, they can get hurt. Uh, which when you talk about guys that throw 100 miles an hour, there's a pretty high risk of injury. Um, is Stamon a guy that maybe should be considered to be traded, or is he maybe a guy they should really consider stashing in their bullpen in case they they are good here in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, even if well, let's say that you think Stamon is going to be someone that is, or excuse me, I'm trying to say this. So if you think that in, let's say, and I think as I mentioned earlier, we know this year they're probably not going to make the playoffs. And next year it seems also unlikely, given that the AF Central is apparently surging now um, with the Indians and uh, the Twins and the White Sox. Um, but, you know, if you think even 20, let's call it 2022, you think the Royals have a chance. Like, we have no idea what relievers are going to be good by then. Um, I mean, Trevor Rosenthal is a really good case where, he was acquired, and people who acquired him thought he'd be good, and he wasn't. Um, or we've had Ian Kennedy, who was good last year, now he isn't. I mean, relievers are just so fungible, and they fall off, uh, or they, they come out of nowhere. It's just so easy nowadays, I think. And easy is maybe too strong of a word, but it's not as difficult um, to find a good reliever as it is to find a good player at another position. Um, and so I think that I think it's Domont, you know, outside of the idea that reliever attrition rates are high and that planning uh, to have this reliever three years from now isn't necessarily a good foundation to to plan on. Um, Stamon is a guy that it's not just the reliever attrition, it's the seven per nine walk rate or whatever he might be running at this point. I don't know if it updated after, I didn't see the update after last night, but six and a half even. Um, it's this kind of thin line that he's treading that even though it does feel like he's been really good this year and from an ERA standpoint he has even from a FIP standpoint he's been decent um I think it's like a a 61 FIP minus or something I again I, I could be wrong I'm pulling off the top of my head from what I remember seeing um but I mean even though even as good as he he may have felt so far he's still walking whatever it ends up being uh yeah 6.75 batters per nine you know 
per, or if you for percentage base, it's seventeen percent. So seventeen percent hitters he faced he's faced this year he's walked, um, which is a very high number. And his ERA is 0.61. His FIP is 3.07. Um, a very very large gap between the two. And he at one point was running a hundred percent strand rate. Now he's at a ninety seven percent strand rate. I think one of the runners um, was when he left. I think one of the runners scored. Uh, so yeah, I mean. There's a lot going on there that you are thinking like, man, as good as he's been, there's a lot of underlying numbers um, and exit velocity is another one as well that you're like, man, I don't know how long. If I can get someone to buy into these 14 innings, because remember, he pitched 19 innings last year, 19.1, and he was he was pretty bad. Um, struck out six per nine, six point, well, let me say it right. Struck out 17%, walked 11.5%. Um, or struck out 6.98, walks 4.66, so extremely close either way. Um, and he was really, really bad for 19.1 innings last year. And he hasn't even hit 19 innings this year to kind of necessarily even out how bad he was last year. Uh, so I think if you can find someone, you know, maybe not necessarily here. Well, obviously it's too late now, but this winter, if you can find someone that's buying uh, the heat that he has, then I think it's smart to sell him. I don't know what the heck his value is, um, but I do think that it wouldn't be wise that if you've got a hot hand reliever to go ahead and trade it because, you know, as again, as we know as Royals fans, we've seen us, we've seen the Royals be burned in the past by not trading someone um, or trading them too late. Yeah, there, there was a trade proposal by, I think it was Mark Feinsand on MLB.com where he proposed trading Stalmont and Trevor Rosenthal and Danny Duffy to the Yankees for Miguel Andujar. And it, that trade was kind of panned, and I, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, at the same time, I was like, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound that great, like that great of a trade. But I will point out that Andujar, you know, he put up a really good rookie season, and since then he's been hurt, so that that's diminished his value quite a bit. But if you can get a good position player, not even a great position player, like Andujar is a poor defender, but hit 27 home runs his rookie year, and he was a 2.8 win player. Um, that's more valuable than a reliever. I mean, the best reliever, there's only two relievers last year that were more than a three-win player. So the odds of Stalmont being that valuable are pretty low, and there are a lot of things that can go wrong. So, you know, I wouldn't trade him for anything. Uh, I think you can ask for a lot for him, but if someone's coming, coming and offering a young position player that has a pretty good chance of being a solid player, I think you really do have to at least consider that. And... Um, and I like Josh Tom. I love watching him pitch. He has probably the most explosive fastball I've seen from the Royal from a Royals pitcher. His curveball is incredible, but he does have you know some walk issues, like you mentioned. And I just you know a lot. I think a lot can go wrong with relievers. Uh, so I, in my mind, no one's untouchable. And and I think Stomach's a guy that I would at least consider if the right deal came along. But of course, we don't know what what's out there. So uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the rest of the trade deadline, including those aggressive San Diego Padres. Well, everyone was predicting it was going to be a slow trade deadline due to a short season and expanded playoffs and uncertainty over the postseason. But instead, we had one of our busiest trade deadlines in some time, and a lot of that had to do with the San Diego Padres. They pulled off the blockbuster of the deal uh, by getting Mike Clevenger, the starting pitcher from the Indians, in a nine-player trade. Uh, They also got Rosenthal, of course, from the Royals, catcher Austin Nola from the Seattle Mariners, catcher Jason Castro from the Los Angeles Angels, First baseman Mitch Moreland from the Boston Red Sox and pitcher Taylor Williams from the Brewers. Uh, there's some other deals that went down as well. It's a pretty busy uh, deadline. The Blue Jays getting Robbie Ray. The uh, uh, also getting shortstop Jonathan Villar. Uh, the Rangers, uh, the Oakland A's got Mike Miner from the Rangers. Uh, 
Sean, I guess what do you make of the busy trade deadline in San Diego in particular being the most aggressive, putting kind of their chips uh, all out there? Yeah, you know, I love A.J. Preller, man. Uh, I like him back at the Rangers. I mean, he was an incredible international scout and could find talent there. I I just think that I like A.J. Preller, the GM. Now, obviously, I think he gets a bad, not a bad rap, but I, I think he's unappreciated for what he did in Texas because um, he was the GM when they – um, I'm wrong with this, actually. Was he the GM when they went to the World Series, you know, lost to the Cardinals, and then um, – that was big, John Daniels, but I think that he was, was part John of the Daniels. front office. Yeah, 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 right, right. But he's part of that front office. Yeah, was. sorry. Um, and so, but I think he did good, obviously in uh, in Texas, and then obviously in San Diego. And now I think we know him from trying to go too all in too quickly when he first took over the Padres. Uh, but I think what he did, what he did this time around, is just excellent. I mean, he didn't get other than Clevenger. I was going to say he didn't get anybody, you know, spectacular, but he got Clevenger. Um, but the 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 quantity of the moves, he gave up nothing really. I mean, Taylor Trammell, who's a, a good prospect, a fifty future value prospect, that's the best player he gave up. And he, you know, hands down, or the Padres hands down have been considered to have won the trade deadline. They got Clevenger, they got a couple of the useful pieces, and like they really didn't give up much. And they've still got, you know, Patino, Capisano, Gore, um, CJ Abrams. I mean uh, Cronenworth, who obviously was not traded, he's on the MLB roster. But Cronenworth was another guy they kept, and he was a top 100 prospect. So it's just kind of incredible um, how they were able to make a ton of moves, improve their team, and then not lose anybody uh, effectively. Anybody that's like you know legit future player for them in the sense that they can they're expecting to give 600 1200 plate appearances too so i think it was great i think the padres had it had one of the better trade deadlines i think i've i've seen in a while yeah i think i noticed that the traffic all over sb nation baseball sites was way up this week uh and i think you know trades a lot of trades are good for the game it generates a lot of interest among fans i mean the nba trade deadline always seems really manic and popular uh, and then Matthew, I have to wonder why there was so much uh, trade activity. I, do you think the expanded playoffs helped it this year, or are there some other factors maybe that that caused more teams to kind of make trades than we've seen in the last couple of years? Well, I think so. I don't have any data to prove this, but I think um, the the real differentiator is that this was the hard trade deadline, right? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are there are no trades available after um, after today, right? I think you can technically make a trade, but the player would not be eligible for the postseason, which makes it kind of moot if for a lot of teams. But right, so, yeah. yeah. So 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 the way that it works in in, in previous years or in a normal year is that um, so there is a July trade deadline. So that's sort of like the soft trade deadline. Um, but you can still make a trade after the deadline up to the end of August um, for your um, the player you acquired to make the postseason roster. Um, that player just has to go through waivers and a team can't can't claim him. It's just it's it's a big complicated process, but basically, um, you can trade players after you know uh, after July. It happens all the time. The Royals did it in twenty fourteen, most famously with uh, Josh Willingham. Um, if you can remember that, is very random Royal. Um, but they, they got him in August. Uh, more recently, the Astros acquired Justin Verlander in August. You know, those things sort of happen. So if need be, um, teams can make trades after the trade deadline in a normal season. But this year, 
there was basically one trade deadline. So if a team wanted to get a trade done, they had one chance to do it. And I really think that that causes some more um, some more excitement, right? And teams can't just be like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, we can make something work in August if we need to. You know, they have to make the decision to buy or to sell, and then they have to go out and do it. Um, and I think that is really the main reason why um, this trade deadline was what it is. Um, it, that's just my opinion, though. Um, we'll we'll see if Major League Baseball sort of sees this and is like, oh, well, this is interesting. Maybe we'll you know implement it for a full season. But um, you're right, Max. Like the rest of the factors don't seem to make any sense, right? Like this is a short season. Um, you know, there's not there's not even a guarantee that the playoffs could um, you know happen without interruption. You know, we don't know what it's going to look like COVID related in a couple months. Um, so it, it certainly seems that there are other factors at play other than the, uh, the shortened season. And I think the biggest factor is the, the one trade deadline to rule them all. As someone who's very much against expanded playoffs, I really hope baseball doesn't look at this and says expanded playoffs or the reason, even if they are the reason, uh, but I would like to see them, you know, try to look for ways to make, uh, the trade deadline more exciting. I, I think also one factor is perhaps we are seeing kind of the culmination of, the, of a few rebuilds like the Padres and the White Sox. I was a little surprised they didn't make any big moves other than getting, you know, draw dice. And I think it was the only trade they made, uh, but they were involved in a lot of rumors and, and I think they'll be very busy this off season, but um, the Padres and White Sox, I think in particular kind of culminated their, their rebuilds and they're kind of looking now to put it, uh, take the next step. I think the Blue Jays, are kind of looking to take that next step now. The Reds, I think, are certainly ready to, to kind of put them themselves into contention. So I think there are some teams now that were kind of sitting on the sidelines for a couple of years that are ready to get kind of get back in the game. And, and when you've been sitting out for two years, you, like, you really want to go out there and just make a big splash. And so it's kind of cool to see the Padres do that. Hopefully that'll be the Royals here in the next, you know, two years because uh, it certainly is a lot more fun when you're out there acquiring uh, good players rather than just trading all your good players away. So... Let's wrap it up with our Royal Review reviews. Uh, Sean, why don't you start off this week? Um, mine's going to be, as, as usual, um, I finally got around to seeing First Man, um, which was the third movie now um, from acclaimed director uh, Damien Chazelle. Um, he did Whiplash. He did La La Land. Um, and this one also features Ryan Gosling, who was in La La Land, um, playing Neil Armstrong. Uh, kind of came out, it was... It, it, I was going to say it came out kind of under under the radar, but not necessarily true. I remember there was decent hype, and I think it got a few Academy Award nominations. Um, but, it, you know, I, I feel like La La Land got a lot more press. Uh, and so, I mean, it, 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 a great movie. I can't believe it took me this long to see it. I remember being excited and playing it on TV in theaters, but I just never got around to it. Um, but it's basically a movie about um, the entire Apollo space program, uh, you know, when Neil Armstrong's flying X-15 rockets uh, or X-15, um, oh gosh, uh, aircraft and kind of the whole genesis of the space program. And the kind of cool thing is it's really good at the, the, the history or the chronology of the uh, Apollo program or the Gemini program uh, that, you know, basically was like, we need to get um, in on the moon. Um, but it also details things that I didn't know about in the sense of um, Armstrong's personal life. Uh, 
you might not know, but he, he lost a daughter um, through a brain tumor, I think, when she was two or three. And that really affected him and was part of the reason why he even went to the moon in the first place. Because I think I read that his daughter passed away in January and he went right to work uh, on the Jiminy program in February. Uh, so it, it's this motivation he had and something that I had never known. So, um, really great movie. Uh, I gave it on letterbox, um, which I, you know, uh, track movies that I've seen and I can rate them and put on my favorites. Um, uh, I gave it a five. I, th- I think it's spectacular. And like the last 20 minutes, the lunar landing scene is just, it's just incredible. Um, so, uh, first man, I don't know if it's available on anything, uh, any streaming platforms at the moment. Um, I found it uh, through completely, totally normal legal means, um, which I will always say go about that route. Uh, but I watched it um, on, I guess what we can call alternative cinema, I think to be, to be, uh, <laughs> to give it a name. So <laughs> first man, really good movie. I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause uh, I remember when the trailer came out, I meant to go see, or I meant to rent it with my, and have watch it with my son. Cause I thought it'd be good story to watch with him and I and and it came out in video and I just I forgot to so um that's a good reminder to, to catch that so first yep. man uh and well, yeah. um what's her name Claire from the crown I forget her name Claire Foy, no, Claire, Claire Foy. okay yeah. cool. and and Kyle Chandler who's like a serious oh. you know guy and <laughs> yeah uh and it's not just that it's got uh, hold on I have to look it up now that we talk about it um because it has got there are so many cameos in it. It might not be the right word, but yeah, it's got a lot uh, of that uh, guys. Like, um, I forgot, yeah. I forgot how you say his name. Karen Hines from, I mean, from everything, but game oh, yes. of Thrones, what I remember yeah. from, he was, um, yep. uh, the guy, the, the, the wildling leader, uh, Ethan Embry, oh. who's been in a lot of stuff. Corey yep. Stoll, who was great in house of cards. Yep. Lucas Haas, Pablo Schreiber from orange is the new black. I mean, Christopher Abbott from girls. There's just so many, people in it brian drc james who's a big broadway actor anyways amazing how and they're all bit parts too like christopher abbott who if you've seen girls um he plays scott i think or david scott i think is the character's name and like uh he's in the movie for 10 minutes basically you know and it's like that's it and you know he's not that he's a giant actor but i mean he's a fairly popular actor and it's like it's just awesome all these kind of bit parts that these really good uh actors play so worth checking out first man okay matthew what do you got tonight um, so I was in Cleveland over the weekend uh, to uh, go to a friend's wedding. Um, and on Friday, I went to Cedar Point. Um, now, I, if you don't know me, uh, I'm, I'm a big roller coaster guy. Um, but I would recommend Cedar Point to uh, everyone, to anyone who is at least uh, reasonably interested in uh, amusement parks, um, theme park rides, roller coasters. Um, it has uh, the best collection of roller coasters um, in the world, in my opinion, in one park. Um, it's got, you know, like really half a dozen like top-notch world-class roller coasters. Um, and in addition to that, it's just got a bunch of other fun rides, thrill rides. Um, it's on a peninsula, and the whole, you know, it's it's very pretty. Um, when you Whenever you ride a roller coaster and you go up the lift hill, you can see, you know, um, the lake all around it. Um, you know, there are some obvious... Uh, COVID things that they that they put in place, COVID procedures. But uh, next year, if you get the chance, I highly recommend going to Cedar Point. Uh, they have coasters for everyone and um, the rides for everyone, and it's just it's just a really fun place. Um, it's it's run by the same uh, company as Worlds of Fun, so it's going to feel similar to that. Um, and you can actually get 
something that's called a platinum pass. It's a Cedar Fair platinum pass um, that is basically a, a full season pass for all of the Cedar Fair uh, parks, which include, like I said, Worlds of Fun, Cedar Point, um, other parks like King's Dominion um, and King's Island and uh, Canada's Wonderland, which is in Toronto and a bunch of other parks. Um, but it's it's a really great place, and you know, Worlds of Fun is is a really good park. It really is. But there is nothing quite like going up to Cedar Point um, on a nice day and getting some rides on some of the best roller coasters in the world. Uh, yeah, my son wants to go there so bad. <laughs> we didn't. Uh, we, we didn't. We weren't going to go there this summer, but I think one of these one of these days we'll have to make a, a trip out there. So uh, yeah, Cedar Point out in Ohio. Uh, my uh, recommend my review this week is uh, you know Chadwick Boseman. Of course, unfortunately. Passed away last week uh, of colon cancer, uh, which we didn't even know. I think he'd been battling it for several seasons. Of course, he's best known for starring in Black Panther, which is an outstanding movie. Uh, but I had never seen 42, which he uh, starred in as well, where he portrayed Jackie Robinson, of course. So this weekend I, I sat down and watched it with my son. And, and it is a fantastic baseball movie. And he is, in particular, uh, outstanding in it. Um, I, I really appreciated the detail that went into a lot of the ballparks and, and the, the mannerisms and just the way he like his jittery, his how jittery his feet are when he's on the bases looks exactly like the footage of Jackie Robinson. You've seen, uh, there are some scenes where he looks eerily like Jackie Robinson, just his facial expression. Some of the photos we've seen of him. I mean, he really did a great job portraying Robinson and for a guy like me, who's like really big into baseball history, like a lot of it, not every single thing, but most of the stuff, was pretty accurate. I, you know, I'm, I'm still the guy that's like, Hey, Fritz, Fritz Ostermuller was actually left-handed, not right-handed, but, uh, the, the big important stuff they got, they got right. And it was really cool to see portrayals of like all those Dodgers and Branch Rickey and, and, uh, Bert Schotten and, and all those guys. And, and it was a really fantastic movie. And I, I, I just want to segue also into, I don't like to, you know, like toot our own horn very much, but, um, I did want to give a shout out to Bradford Lee's article this week. Um, you know, speaking of the, you know, Jackie Robinson, of course, started out in the, in the Negro Leagues of the Kansas City Monarchs. And so, um, you know, that segues into Bradford Lee's piece, which was about George Spriggs, who I'd never had heard of, but he was in the, on the inaugural Royals, uh, Royals team in 1969. Uh, he was kind of an older guy uh, in his 30s by then, but in his younger days, he had started out in the Negro Leagues. And he is the only Kansas City Royals player who actually played in the Negro Leagues. He played for the Monarchs, which I had no idea about. Uh, Bradford actually got to talk to his family a little bit, um, and uh, I guess Spriggs is in declining health at this point, but uh, I'm really glad that, that Bradford is able to get his story out there and let people know that the Royals had a Negro League player out there uh, in, in their early days, and that he, you know, he had a really uh, really terrific career in the big leagues, uh, you know, kind of a role player, um, and uh, and uh, so I, I, you know, I, I, I really never really heard much uh, discussed about him. I knew I do from what I understand, Bob Kendrick had him uh, of the Negro league baseball museum did have him on, uh, on a podcast once, but, uh, I hadn't really heard much about him. So I'm really glad I got to read that. And so definitely check that out on our, on our site. If you get the chance and read about George Spriggs, well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show. And thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time.